0: Canine conservationists podcast where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every other week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run canine conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. Today, I have the joy of talking to Esther Matthew about training conservation dogs for a critically endangered lagomorph. Esther grew up in central South Africa and became fascinated with nature and animals at a really young age. Following high school, she pursued degrees in zoology, physiology, biodiversity, and conservation and ecology. In 2015, she completed her master's in environmental science. And as part of her studies, she successfully raised and trained a scent detection dog to locate giant African bullfrogs underground. The project ignited Matthew's interest in training canines for conservation and research. As a result, she pursued additional training with national and international professionals in the canine behavior and scent detection fields. Matthew joined the Endangered Wildlife Trust's Dryland Conservation Program in 2016 and is currently working as their specialist conservation officer focusing on in situ endangered species conservation and research. Esther also has a passion for sharing conservation knowledge. As such, she works closely with learners from local schools, taking them into the field to teach them about nature through environmental education. Matthews con- coordinates the program's volunteer project aimed at exposing young career conservationists to fieldwork in the Karoo. Esther is a National Geographic Society explorer and is a highly dedicated and motivated conservationist. Esther aims to become one of the leaders in conservation canine research because she's passionate for wildlife conservation and research. She has an aptitude for the application of novel approaches in her work. Her enthusiasm and drive motivates other team members and her strong foundation in conservation biology allows her to lead by example." Holy cow, guys. I'm so excited to share this interview with you. I had so much fun talking to Esther, and she's really, um, she is so knowledgeable and has so much to share. Um, but first, I have to remind you that our Field Vehicle Repair Fundraiser is ongoing. As I record, the van is in, um, it has had its exploratory surgery. We know what's wrong. We know how much it's going to cost. It's going to be a lot, um, but it's, uh, it is less and not as bad as we originally expected. So um, in the meantime, um, while we're hoping to be able to pick up the van, soon and get, um, get our, our feet wet with our field season this year. Um, you can support the fundraiser in any way you can, even if all you can do is share the link. You can find that link in the show notes on kingineconservationists.org. So um, let's get on to the interview with Esther. Thanks so much for coming on, Esther. Um, let's start out with the most important topic here. Um, tell us a little bit about your dog and um, get, let us get to know her a little bit before we dive into the actual interview.
1: Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, the dog I used, um, her name is Jessie. Um, she's a border collie. Uh, she comes from working mm-hmm. sheepdog parents. Um, so both of her parents work with sheep. Um, and yeah, I got her at the age of six months, and she's turning eight years old uh, this year. So she's been doing scent oh work all, all all her life long, basically. Um, so we started. Working with her with um, with uh, bullfrog scent uh, as part of my master's study, uh-huh. where uh, we did some amphibian research, and then I joined the Endangered Wildlife Trust and um, subsequently trained her on on and rabbits as well.
0: Awesome, yeah. So she's about the same age. I, it's funny, um, having read read your paper, I assumed she was a lot younger because. Um, yeah. yeah, you, you she, talked she, about how you acquired her, and she's about the same age as my dog, Barley, who's also a border
1: okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, yeah so she um, she uh, is um, around. She's walking around here as well. Um, but she... Um, <laughs> uh, I, I published uh, the same... Um, this year, I published the, the, the research on amphibians as well in the same journal uh, for the special mm-hmm. edition. So that was when she was three or four years old, and now the... Um, Lagomorph research was
0: now more recently. Gotcha. Yeah, we Mm -hmm. might have to circle back and do another episode with you about the bullfrog work. Um, (laughs) I would love to hear more about it. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's start out, let's uh, kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about this Lagomorph study. What was um, the goal of the study and how did that impact what you were doing as far as training the dog?
1: I guess Okay. So, um, basically, uh, what happened is I joined the Endangered Wildlife Trust, and um, our research focuses on the um, the career environment and the the endangered species that occur in in the environment. And so uh, the. Critically endangered riverine rabbit is one of the most endangered indi- 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 um, mammal species. I think top thirteen in the world, if I don't have it incorrectly. Oh my goodness! So, yeah. <laughs> so the numbers for them are completely unknown, actually, at the moment, um, and the habitat is decreasing at a at a um, at a huge rate. So um, we started uh, working to find out exactly where their distribution is. So. Um, also checking historical sightings, do they still occur there? Because where they were found uh, originally in 1901, they don't occur anymore, as well as the second location where they were found. So um, so the research entails basically finding, <laughs> finding riverine rabbits. Mm. Uh, they're very elusive species, mm-hmm. very great at camouflaging, and um, they are... Excellent at hide and seek games. So, um, that was, (laughs) that was kind of how the study started. Um, we did use other methods before, um, which included food surveys, Mm -hmm. making a lot of noise, trying to flush the rabbits to, to see if you can find them. And then also we do use, still use camera traps, um, as well to Mm -hmm. monitor the species and detect their presence. But both of these techniques, the food surveys, Um, presented a lot of logistical problems, and even if a rabbit then does not jump up, you don't know if you've missed them or if um, they actually are not present in the environment. Um, And Mm -hmm. camera traps are are really uh, good at finding river rabbits, but it's a very time-consuming process, and we can't cover huge areas. Sorry, that's Jesse in the background as well. Um, so we can't cover huge areas with camera traps. So basically, we looked at um, J C as a, a rapid detection method um, for finding the species.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that was um, that was actually my next question: was which other methods have been attempted, and what were what were the challenges with those? So
1: <laughs> you yes. uh, you know the drill here. <laughs> you know exactly where we were going. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I was just reading a paper the other day that said with... Um, this was with bobcats, I believe, in the US. Um, it took seven to eight weeks for camera traps to detect or confirm bobcat presence, and the dog was able to do that work in, I think, two days. Um, okay. So it's just, yeah. uh, at least in that particular study, that particular target species, it, it you know, it's just so much faster. Please. Um, so... Then you actually trained, uh, Jesse, with, with roadkill rabbits, right? Um, why, did we, why did we go that route or, you know, what are some of the, the considerations you're making when you're using um, a dead animal and hoping to have the dog find the live animal?
1: Yeah, so that was the biggest challenge of this uh, study and actually many trainers told me it was not doable to train a dog um, with scent from the dead animal to find the live animal. Um, <laughs> But that was our only option in this case. Um, so, River and Robots, because they're so endangered, there's uh, none of them in captivity at all. Um, oh, my gosh. And, yeah. And we're also not allowed to catch them because of their status. So, we aren't allowed to handle them, can't even collect scent from one. So, the only source of scent was roadkill, unfortunately. So, that… Um, That did bring its own challenges, Um, so that is what makes the study unique and that is why we wanted to publish this research just to show that it it may take a bit longer but it is in in the case of really elusive and really endangered species Mm -hmm. that you could potentially use some some scent like roadkill uh, to train the dog on. So um, what we did is we collected uh, fur samples as well as skin swabs from roadkills and to mm-hmm. kind of to um, to help the dog to ignore the other scents, such as the scent from the car that hit it and the the person who handled it, and and so on. Uh, we would do scent lineups. Um, I think in the paper there is a a, a, a picture of the equipment we used, where um, we would then put from different roadkills samples within the lineup and reward for that in. Um, in that way, we could teach JC to um, find something that's similar in the samples, and ignore then the rest. So you kind of fine tune um, mm-hmm. what you're looking for by rewarding for all of the different samples, um, which helps it ignore the 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 components that are not relevant to the specific animal. So yeah, Yeah, Rotul is is obviously not the ideal scent to go for, but (laughs) unfortunately that is uh, the only thing we had to work with.
0: Yeah, that's so my dog and I have worked on black-footed ferrets, which are one of the most endangered mammals in North America, Um, Mm -hmm. and our initial training there was also done on um, basically freeze-dried ferret parts, because they do have captive breeding programs um, luckily for the black-footed ferrets. Mm and uh, so yeah we had we had like these baggies that had ferret paws and ferret pelts and those sorts of things that you know they definitely weren't perfect and we did have the opportunity before deploying the dogs to train them on live ferrets that had been bred in captivity and were about to be released um which i know you similarly had kind of a final step to help the dog to help jc move from the yeah, from onto that live um, live rabbit. So why don't we talk a little bit about how that happened um, as you started moving towards actually deploying with her? Yes. Yeah, so so um, you're
1: correct uh, with saying that. So we started with a very controlled environment. Um, so that's where the training equipment came in, the scent lineups, etc., to fine tune um, Jesse's nose into the target species. And then after that, we went out to, and um, that's in, in the article, it's referred to as phase two, where we went outside, uh, which in the beginning was just a general someone's backyard type of training. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to more, uh, we had a site that was had the same components as the natural environment, but was a camped-in area with, with that definitely did not have rabbits in, but had the – the fragrances Mm -hmm. of the vegetation. So in this area the the Mm -hmm. bushes that occur um, where the rabbit is 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 quite vibrant and fragrant um, which could be a big distraction. So we started just going outside adding like environmental factors and then moving to areas that are more the same to the components that she would get in a real-life situation. And then for the last phase, we t- took her to a site where we confirmed the presence of river and rabbits with camera traps. So we know we knew they were, were going to be there and that we could potentially encounter them, but then we would still hide scents out for Jessie to find. And then when when a, a, a real river and rabbit was encountered, we would then reward a um, at the spot where it jumped up for indicating there. And and that's making that switch between the, the scent that she's been trained on and the live animal. Um, obviously after yeah. I've confirmed that it is the correct species.
0: Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of other um, rabbit species in the area that could be confusing for you as a handler <laughs> uh, to confirm. Yes.
1: Yeah, so, so we get his, his yeah, hares and rabbits that overlap um, with the roran rabbit. So it's very important that the person um, we had volunteers that would um, go with in, uh, because I had to reward JC as well in the same time, just as an extra pair of eyes to confirm that it is the correct species because obviously you don't want to reward if it's if not your target species. Um, and that's also yeah. why, why we decided to, if we weren't uh, able to confirm Um, that we would rather not reward than reward for for something that it is not.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that (laughs) seems like it's really pretty standard in this industry, is if you can't (laughs) confirm it, you're generally not rewarding, Um, which you know, I think in most of these situations makes a lot of sense. Um, so mm. because, so it sounds like basically what the, the goal was is you're you're moving around and potentially flushing the rabbits and JC yeah. is alerting to that spot. Did you have her on a long line or what, what cor- sorts of safety measures did you have in place to make sure that, because um, I know my border collies, while they generally have very low prey drive, they will chase things that they flush um, yes. in general. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, you, can see, you can see my puppy behind me <laughs> um I have have foster kittens (laughs) right now. No one else can see that, but they might be able to hear them. (laughs) But yeah, you know, they still, they do tend to chase at least.
1: Yeah, so um, as a security measure, and also because of the status of of the species that we work on, uh, we did work, JC on initially a 10 meter lead, but um, the vegetation Mm -hmm. where these rabbits occur are quite thick. So we reduced that to a five meter lead, which obviously makes it more difficult for her to to move around as much. So that just meant that we needed to cover more ground area to make sure that she gets the ability to get close enough to pick up on the scent of,
0: of these rabbits. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, and then and then once it flush when once it flashes, then um, we obviously did not encourage her to chase it, but rather in, encourage her to indicate on the spot where it was last seen. So, um, that also helped to yeah. reduce the the um, the chase drive.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think both of my dogs, and certainly my my working dog, if he if he understood that alerting got him the ball and chasing didn't, uh, that would <laughs> that would is uh, definitely do the trick for him. So it definitely comes down to getting the right dog for the job. Um, yes, because <laughs> I'm sure some I'm sure. of our listeners are hearing us talk about this. There's like no way my dog would <laughs> my dog would care about a ball or a toy around around a bunny that they've just flushed. Yes. Um and so I know one of the other questions that I had so it's uh, it's so great I love guests like this where you you've already answered a lot of the questions that I had but um, can we talk about how we measured specificity and ensured that we were um we were in the you guys were in the right direction um for the training and project.
1: Yes, yeah, so um, I know sometimes I've seen in a few articles that specificity is defined differently. And that's why I also defined it in this mm-hmm. paper as exactly what we meant with specificity. So obviously, in our case, it was how well did Jesse find the target seemed. Um and, and then we also looked at, um, if you look at figure six, um, we looked at species specific, uh, specificity. Specificity. I can't say the word. <laughs> specificity, but anyway, you understand what I mean. But um, the so that was in the case where we had scents from the other lagomorphs in the lineup. Um, so mm-hmm. then that okay. was how how well she would find river and rabbit scent in in between the other scents. Mm-hmm. So um, and if you look at the result, she actually that even better when there was other scents um, in the room. So it was easier for her mm, to indicate on riverine rabbits when there was other lagomorphs present, which um, which kind of makes sense because the control or, or the negative target doesn't smell like anything where, where the hares and the other rabbits have their own distinct scent. So it's much easier for her to distinguish um, then, then maybe an empty container that ma- potentially wasn't washed uh, correctly, or something was handled was, um, contam- uh, con- contaminated when handling, or something mm-hmm. like that. Which obviously is things that we try to avoid. But I mean, there's always,
0: always the possibility that you accidentally contaminate it controls. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. I know I've been in discussions before talking specifically about animals that use kind of latrines or multi-species latrines where you might have, um, you know, urine and feces from a couple different species in a close area. And it seems like, and I don't, as far as I know there's no one who's published anything on this, but anecdotally it seems like some of the dogs are actually better again in these situations where they can compare and shop around and say, Mm red fox, red fox, coyote, swift fox. That's what I'm looking for. (laughs) Um, and they're actually, again, kind of better when they're able to shop around and compare. Um, and I know, um, Dr. Simone Godbois talks a lot about like signal detection theory and looking at, you know, our dog's ability to be either really specific or really sensitive and, um, talking about different ways to help, um, to set up our training to um, to move a dog's uh, specificity or sensitivity in a given direction, or at least selecting the right dog for the job. Um, because I you know for some studies, they'd rather find every single target and maybe get a couple non-targets as well, versus other studies, maybe if your lab fees are really high, you'd rather maybe miss a couple. But only ever end up with samples that are truly correct, um, and we're going to get him onto the podcast at some point to talk <laughs> about that, which I'm very excited for.
1: Okay, yes, that's a, exactly the point. Um, because in our case, um, there is overlap in those species, so we would we we couldn't just find any lagomorphs and then identify them. It was more important to find uh, riverine rabbits. So, in yeah, in our case, it was important to to make the search effort more precise by focusing on one species. And, and because there's overlap, it was necessary to add the other species. If, if the rerun Rabbit occurred in a habitat that didn't overlap with the other species, then we wouldn't have trained in that way, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as far as you know, the species don't, like, hybridize or do anything that makes makes our lives even worse, do they? No, no. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Luckily not. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love it when they do unhelpful things like that. <laughs> um, we're going to come back after a quick ad break and talk a little bit more about the training that you used and some of the results that you got in this study. Um, but first, we've got to hear a couple words from our sponsors hey everyone just popping into this episode with an update on our patreon we still have the three dollar a month doggy detector level which allows you to ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode but now also lets you join our monthly training video analysis calls. These calls are going to be recorded, of course, and we'll also publish the video afterwards for everyone to view and ask questions about prior to the call to ensure that all time zones kind of participate fully. So we'll basically publish the video we're going to analyze so that you can ask questions and view it and prepare ahead of time. Then we'll have the call where we talk about it. We can have beverages. It'll be a good time. And then all of that is going to be shared later so you can Participate before, during, and after. Again, just for three bucks a month. Now, at the $10 a month sensational scientist level, you get everything that we got before at the $3 level, plus you get to submit videos of your training sessions for those calls. So this is perfect for the aspiring canine conservationist, and your target odor doesn't really matter here as long as you do communicate what it is so we can think intelligently about your goals. Um, so this is going to be great for nosework competitors and other canine handlers as well, and we're really striving to make these video calls super kind and supportive and helpful, so... Um, it's going to be a nice safe place on the internet to get good feedback on your training sessions because I know how much of a struggle that can be, especially in the scent work world. So then finally, the canine conservationist patrons get everything from those other two tiers plus a private 30-minute training call with me to go over whatever you're running into with your dog. That tier is just 25 bucks a month, and that's cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com for behavior modification, and that's just because I love you, and I love my patrons. That's definitely something to check out. You can join that Patreon over at patreon.com slash Conservationists, or at the link at canineconservationists.org. It's like a tiny link up in the top bar, and then we also drop that link into our show notes, so if you're listening on your podcast app, you should be able to find it just right from there. So thank you guys so much, and let's get back to the episode. All right. And we are back. Um, And I really wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, something that I find really interesting in what you've done, because it makes a lot of sense to me. So I've heard other trainers hesitate to use off-target species when they're proofing their training. Um, And that always seemed really odd to me. And I've heard kind of the argument being, well, if you expose the dog to an off-target species during training, and then they run into it in the field, that might create some flicker of recognition, and they might alert to it more, um, but again, that always seemed really odd to me. And you decided to use negative targets for training in here. Can you explain why and what the results you got were, um, kind of what you saw using that method?
1: Yes, yeah, so um, we uh, we started training just with um, a riverine rabbit send alone, um, just for the initial mm-hmm. training. Like I said, with the road kill, we wanted to enable the dog to pick up on something that is similar in all the samples. Um, just to make sure that mm-hmm. all the other contaminants are are not something that she uses to find the target, um, and then after mm-hmm. that we added the scent of the the lagomorphs, um, just because mm-hmm. of the overlap and the potential of encountering them as well. Um, and I must uh, also add that that we did get we we got no false indications in the field, um, even mm-hmm. with his being encountered live. Um, during field work, and then also the results showed that, that the dog actually performed much better when the the other lagomorphs scents were present. So we found it was mm-hmm. necessary because of the overlap in habitat um, and and the possibility of encountering the others, and we, we wanted the dog to specifically go um, for the target species and and not waste time on potentially indicating on another lagomorph that we're not interested in. So um, that was the main reason why we added those
0: targets. Or exposed yeah, yeah, and exposed. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 exactly, improved off. And I think um, in the paper you said that you, you gave a, a small correction if she did show a lot of interest early on in training with them or, you know, kind of how, how did you approach that early in training?
1: No, so, um, um, so in, the, in the lineup, um, any incorrect indications were um, just ignored. Okay. And only, yeah. Only, that's, only, that's more Yeah, way, okay, yeah and and only, only reinforced on on uh, the correct indications. So that obviously decreased yeah. the incorrect indications over time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You would imagine. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then the next question I had was that you didn't reward on unconfirmed um, alerts where where she she maybe alerted to something and you just couldn't confirm whether or not um, she was correct, which again, is pretty standard practice in this field. Um, Did you do any training to help her prepare for that kind of variable reinforcement? Um, And if so, kind of, how did she respond in the field if she did make an alert and then you weren't able to reward her because you weren't sure if she was correct? Um,
1: So uh, basically because of, of the reason that she could never really, get um to the target species because obviously it will jump up and run away um we mm-hmm. discussed i uh, so uh, discussed the techniques because with the bullfrogs it was um uh, not the case they uh, they were underground mm-hmm. so they wouldn't move around um so i i uh, spoke to another trainer that works in anti-poaching as well and um mm-hmm. and just discussed about the moving target basically when when's appropriate to reward and when um when do you rather ignore it and and his advice was if i can identify it and i can um i've seen the spot where it's dumped up then i can reward for an indication if not i just encourage her to move along and and uh, Mm -hmm. ignore the the indication so that's basically what i did um i can't actually remember if that was ever necessary to do at I think maybe mm-hmm. once or twice, but um all the other times I could positively confirm that it was the target species. So but it was good to oh, to talk lovely. to someone talk to someone with experience mm-hmm. to see what to do with uh in, in terms of a moving target. So
0: yeah. Yeah. When we've worked with, um, again, with the black-footed ferrets that I've worked with, um, they're underground and they're primarily nocturnal. So unless you're lucky enough to wake one up and have it chatter at you, um, you're pretty much always working with unconfirmed hides um, or unconfirmed alerts. And uh, then we, what, that study, what they would do is they would then go back out at night and put up a camera trap to confirm whether or not the dog was correct. But we had to do all sorts of kind of pre-training to make sure that the dogs were emotionally prepared for working these really long, hard days, and then not necessarily getting rewarded when there was, you know, in all likelihood, at least um, some of the times those dogs were were absolutely correct um, mm-hmm. but the ferrets were just so far underground and so impossible to confirm at the moment. Um, that it was, it was a very tough study, really really challenging stuff. Yeah,
1: no, so what, what we did as well is initially in the field trials um, just also to keep the dog motivated as well because our chances of encountering mm-hmm. a rabbit initially was, was quite low. So we would also hide um, uh, some targets in the field um, just to, mm-hmm. to be able to reward the dog f- at some point. So we would hide a target and then maybe go a day later back and search for the live rabbits and then end our route to where the target was hidden, um, just to give a, a positive end to the day and a reward. So, so we did do that sometimes as yeah. well.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very, very wise. Um, mm. And yeah, just so, so much. So nice for the dogs. Mm. <laughs> um, and for us, I uh, I know, for me, uh, getting to reward my dog at, a, at an alert is one of my favorite parts of the job. Um, <laughs> so um, why don't we kind of, as we're wrapping up here, talk a little bit about the exciting results at the end of the study when you actually fielded the dog, like, um, what ended up happening with this?
1: Yeah, so um, we were very happy to to find the rabbits, especially because, like I said, the numbers um, for individuals are unknown. Um, but we basically mm-hmm. in the six months six month period, we've um, had over thirty sightings or uh, finds with the dog. Um, but because we couldn't. Um, that you can't identify individuals. Um, so we conser- mm-hmm. conservatively worked on um, the locations where we did find them and the potential home range of a rabbit. Um, so we decided to to say that it would be at least ten distinct individual finds. Um, so, mm-hmm. so but we had much more sightings, but it it was. Um, we could, could not know if it was the same individual or not. So um, uh, what was also cool is that we we were able to uh, confirm uh, historical sightings that were more than 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so no one has searched in wow. those areas. And then and Jesse was able to find rabbits on those sites, as well as one site where the original study 30 years ago said, predicted that they could potentially be, but no one ever went to check on that property, and then uh, JC was able to find one there as well. So um, that was some of the highlights from from the field work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh my gosh, that's so cool. And do you know, um, you know, are they going to be able to use the the results that you got from this study in any way to help protect this this habitat or help the species out in any way in the long term?
1: Yeah, so um,
0: the the study still continues. Uh, we're still using J.C. Mm-hmm.
1: on new locations in combination with camera traps on other sites uh, and other techniques. Um, but like I said, she's the most rapid rapid method. Um, so this also helps us. Um, the number of finds that she gets on a property, for example, can can also help indicate the the population size on, on in an area. So, um, what we then do is we identify priority areas. We have identified five, five potential areas in the northern population. Um, and then we're now working with farmers to look at formal, um, protection for these rabbits. Um, because in, so they occur in three populations and the northern population, they actually only occur on privately owned farms. Um, so there's no reserves or any, any formal protection for them in this area and in this specific area their habitat use is um, very restricted and the habitat available is very limited. So um, we are trying to see if we can work with farmers to, to secure it in a more formal way um, if they do have rabbits mm-hmm. and, then, and then try to just make sure that that habitat stays intact
0: yeah 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 well hopefully hopefully there's a kind of continued process here progress here and um, it's cool to know that you guys are still working on this together um what else what else are you and jc working on um do you have any other projects that are coming down the pipeline or anything else you want to you know if people want to keep tabs on what you guys are up to you have such an amazing resume and backstory and i'm sure people will be excited to hear about where you're going next um, yeah,
1: so we have two other projects uh, in the pipeline with Jessie at the moment. Obviously, the rabbit work still um, has a lot of components and a lot of areas to cover still um, because mm-hmm. um, these rabbits only occur in South Africa, but they occur in almost half, half of South Africa. It's a, a very big region um, to cover. So mm-hmm. we still have quite a bit of work with her on that. Um, but then we also working with her to um, train her to find Karoo dwarf tortoise, which is also a, a threatened mm-hmm. species. Um, it's a very small, um, almost like, I don't know if s- centimeters is um, the right way to describe them, but they are seven, wow. seven, seven oh. centimeters is like the adult size. So it's quite small. Oh, my and, gosh. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And they're in, in crevices underneath, um, and in, in between rocks and stuff and rock crevices. So mm-hmm. um, they're very difficult to find. And then uh, another project that we're more actively working on at the moment is we're working with Global Wildlife Conservation. Um, I don't know if you know them, um, but they are supporting um, some of our work in finding uh, two golden mole species on the west coast of South Africa. Uh-huh. So it's basically lost species project. So it's it will be rediscovery of of um, of the moles, and they are the one species hasn't been seen in eighty years. So so they either extinct, wow. <laughs> yeah, they either extinct I'm or old. if we can find them, then it it, it will be a rediscovery. So Jesse's um, helping us in finding. Um, the tunnels within the dunes. So they, um, they're dune swimming malls, so they don't really leave tunnels. Wow. It collapses behind them. So we're using um, mm-hmm. Jesse to help us find those tunnels and then um, see if we can find the particular species that we're looking for. So um, we're wow. actually going, going out next month with her to um, continue our work on that as well.
0: Very cool! Wow, I'm gonna have to Google that species, and uh, <laughs> I, I can't imagine how many cool a- adaptations they have to make sure that they don't get just sand everywhere if they're yeah, yes. din swimming. I haven't heard that term before. That's fascinating.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, so we are using other other techniques as well, but um, JC is is part of the study. Um, we're looking at uh, using mm-hmm. thermal drones and then also DNA techniques to find these moles um but obviously it helps if mm-hmm. jc indicates on the tunnel to rather collect soil samples where there's been activity than randomly collecting soil samples so just also helping us yeah, definitely. pinpoint areas of of activity so
0: Oh, that's so cool, and I love I love how it, it, just in this this episode we've talked about so many different ways that we can use dogs in conjunction with camera traps, with human searchers, with eDNA, with thermal drones. There's just there's so many different ways to uh, to be able to combine all these different non-invasive sampling techniques to to look at these incredibly hard to find species. Yes. So those are all the questions I had for you. Is there anything else that you want to make sure to bring up or talk about or mention as we're wrapping up? Um, the only thing I thought of
1: is there is a, a video on YouTube uh, about Jessie. Um, it also shows the mm-hmm. rabbit that she's working on and we managed to get on a GoPro one of her finds. So where she goes into the bush and the rabbit jumps out on the other side. So um i can oh my also, gosh, wow i can also share that link with you um if people want to see it also explains the other techniques mm-hmm. that we're using and then a little bit more about
0: jesse Yes, I, we would definitely love that. We'll be able be sure to link it in the show notes. Um, and Mm -hmm. if anyone else, um, wants other ways to keep tabs on, do you, do you have social media or other ways that people can keep up on your projects on JC's training and everything? Okay. So JC has a Facebook page. Um, (laughs) I'll, I'll
1: share the handles, uh, with you. It's, um, Mm -hmm. JC, the border collie on, on, um, facebook um but it's JC with uh, ie so um j-e-s-s-i-e um and then also mm-hmm. on on instagram it's JC the bc um and then also okay. my ha- my handle on instagram is esther explorer so if people want to
0: follow us Excellent. Yeah, we'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes. And I'll make sure that I go ahead and give you a follow. Uh, I'm always Thanks. excited to be able to connect more. Um, Instagram is my my love language. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, thank you so much for joining. This was a lot of fun. And as I said, I think um, we'll, uh, we'll probably have to reconnect to talk about the bullfrog work, um, because I, I know that's another really interesting study you guys have been involved in. And I, I think our listeners would love to hear about it
1: okay great yeah that was uh, that was now before, before the rabbit work so i'll have to just uh, make mm-hmm. sure I, I get all that information together again because it's been quite a while um because that was jesse's first job so um since then we've we've um, done a few other things but um yeah no thank you so much for the time and to chat to us as well and it's always nice to Hear from other trainers as well and and
0: get mm-hmm. exchange tips and ideas and so on. yeah, yeah, likewise it's, this has been great. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find show notes and extra information on this episode over at canineconservationists.org and support our field vehicle repairs over at our GoFundMe page, which again, we will have linked at canineconservationists.org. Until next time, I'm Kayla Fratt and this is the Canine Conservationists Podcast.